Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Got some good news. For months, we've been praying for this thing called switchgear, which is the electrical equipment that allows us to bring in power from outside into the building and divert it to the rest of the building and turn the power on in the new edition. It came, and there it is, installed. The power, though, is not yet on. The saga continues. Now what we're waiting on is the coordination of at least three different groups to be present on site on the same day at the same time to turn the power on without voiding the warranty on our air conditioners. So train, the company that makes the AC has to send somebody on site to be present. So we have a date, but it's not till early November. So keep praying, ask the Lord to please bring that about at least by then. But that is very good news, God's answer to our prayer. We are in the middle of a series in the book of Philippians, but today we are setting Philippians aside and we're turning to another passage of the Apostle Paul's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. That's the passage that's helped me a great deal in my life. I still remember where I was when, uh, when I first encountered or the, when this passage landed in my consciousness and the Lord um, made it known to me that this was in the Bible was really helpful, informative for me, and relieving to me, as I hope it will be to you today, about evangelism, that this is something while we're called to be faithful and to speak God's word, God is at work in us. And, it, and, and the truth and the way he works is really relieving because it shows that it's not about you and me. The pressure of success is not on you and me. It's God's work, and he performs it in a variety of ways. We've been getting to know the Apostle Paul better over the last year and a half as we've worked through the uh, Acts of the Apostles, and more recently we've been in Philippians, him and his ministry and the character of this man. He had a lot of big successes in his life. It's fair to say that nobody besides the Lord Jesus himself has done more to advance the faith that we have that's been handed down to us, to establish it, form it, and pass it on in such a way that it would come all the way to Bloomington. We have a lot to be thankful for with this man, Paul. But his work was not a cakewalk. It was very difficult. He suffered a lot for the sake of the gospel. He was a herald of the grace of God, but not everybody received that message um, kindly or, or, or gratefully or accepted it. Paul endured a lot of mistreatment at the hands of his own countrymen, the Jews, who largely rejected their own Messiah. He, he experienced a lot of of, of hatred and cruelty at the hands of Gentiles who would not uh, give up their idolatrous ways. More painfully than all of that, though, was the fact that Paul suffered a lot of, at the hands of Christians who tended to look down on him as a minister and as an apostle. And this was largely because there were these super apostles out and about, men who did not suffer as Paul did, in their ministries because they did not speak the whole truth as Paul did. They trimmed the message of Christ so as to be inoffensive 
and to avoid persecution and pushback from the world. And so they appeared very successful and they gained a large following and some of Paul's own converts listened to them and began to look down on and despise the Apostle Paul for not being more like them. Did that hurt, Paul? It did. Being apostle does not make you like impervious <laughs> to feelings and the bullets don't just bounce off your chest just because you're God's chosen servant or instrument. And it's really helpful to see that. We see indications of Paul's humanity and feeling of bur- the burdens he carried for people and how they viewed him and whether they would listen to him. He carried those things very heavily on his heart and mind. And we see that in this passage. It's helpful to see. Paul understood the suffering that he endured to be necessary. Necessary. Part of what God has called his true servants to endure for the sake of Jesus. He understood suffering for Christ to be part of God's plan and a sacrifice pleasing to him. And that gave Paul faith for it. Faith to endure through hard things. And because of his faith, Paul was able even to find joy in the midst of his pain, his persecutions, his heavy burdens. And he talks about that joy a lot in the book we're in, the book of Philippians. And that's not like a moment of joy. Paul has found joy in prison in lots of ways as he delights in the work that God is accomplishing through him even though he's in chains. And he writes to the people in Philippi to say, I want you to share in my joy. I want you to follow in my ways and follow my example. I want you also to have the same attitude that I have about suffering so that you can have the same joy that I experience by faith. We tend to think that we've got to get rid of suffering. We've got to avoid it. We've got to clear the decks of all that's uncomfortable and difficult in our lives so that we can finally at last find peace and joy. And that's completely the opposite of the example and the teaching of the Apostle Paul. No, joy is to be found right down the middle, trusting God with what he has given us to endure for him. And as we live by faith, trusting God and seeing that, as, that the very things that are uncomfortable and difficult and painful in our lives, as, as we submit to them in faith, God receives that as an offering that is pleasing to him. And we can enjoy his smile upon us. And that's what brings joy into our lives. Pleasing the Lord. That's the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Today we're going to look at a passage that he wrote in a letter to another church, the Corinthians, where he opens up his view on all the things of his ministry. God sometimes gives Paul these moments when he just sort of rises above and he looks down on everything that he's been experiencing or saying. And he has a kind of ecstatic Big picture view of it. And he gives us one of those here in a very helpful way. It's particularly helpful to us as a church as we seek to have more faith for the suffering that comes from being evangelistic. Let's look at it together. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 12 to 17. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. Paul writes, Now, When I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. 
But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's talk first of all about the first couple of verses, which gives us the context in which Paul is making this, um, get this bird's eye view, kind of ec- ecstatic uh, understanding of his ministry and his life. Uh, Paul is writing um, a letter to a church. And he says here in this, in the, just in these preceding verses, he says that, I went to Troas, but I found no rest for my spirit there. And this is clearly, even despite the fact that things are going really well, there's all kinds of gospel opportunities afforded him there. He's just left Ephesus down the road, and things are going gangbusters in Ephesus. And and so this is possibly an exciting follow-up opportunity for ministry, and yet Paul finds no rest for his spirit because he didn't find Titus there. And this is not so much directly about Titus, it's about the Corinthians. He has lots of concern for this church in Corinth, which is across the sea, a church that he had founded years before, and which was causing him a lot of heartburn, a lot of pain. And he had heard some things about the Corinthians that very much disturbed him. He heard about their pride. He heard about their... Uh, divisiveness, their party spirit, their selfishness. And worst of all, he heard that there was in their midst a brother in the church that was guilty of a heinous sin that nobody was dealing with, and they were even celebrating, or tolerating at least. And here's what the sin was. It was the sin of a young man who married his, probably his stepmother. He had his father's wife, is how the language Paul uses, a man who married his father's wife, so probably his stepmom, probably his dad had married a younger woman, um, maybe a second wife or maybe a replacement to this young man's mom. She was probably younger than his dad, and his dad probably passed away. This young man was close to this woman, and they decided to get married. And Paul says, this is something even the Gentiles don't do. This is awful. This is contrary to God's law. It's contrary to nature. Nobody does this. And so here's what he He rises up in all of the authority of his apostleship. This is in a letter. He sends a letter to them to communicate these things. He says, here's what I've done. I've already judged this man. And now you, while you're together in the spirit of God, are are to bring about the judgment. And that is this. You're to put him out of the church. In Paul's words, he says, you are to deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit will be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, bring about discipline. Show him his shame. Show him that that is unacceptable. Put him out of the church. 
Paul wrote this command to the Corinthians, and he had no idea how they were going to respond. This letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, this first letter, 1 Corinthians, is a masterpiece. It is filled with so much pastoral wisdom. The love chapter, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is in there. So this is like a masterpiece of a letter. But how's Paul feeling? He's not feeling like he's done some great work for posterity. He's feeling like you and I feel like when we've uh, got some communication, an email maybe to send that's difficult to a friend or a loved one. Some hard things need to be said. We don't know how they'll receive it. We've taken great care. We've written it carefully. We've prayed over it. We've labored over every word. We've pressed send. And then, then we have to wait. And we have to deal with this, the anxiousness of wondering, will, it, will, they, will they hear me? Will they reject me? What are they thinking? I don't know. You know that feeling? That's how Paul's feeling. And Titus is like the go-between. Titus has been sent by Paul to bring back word. And that's why he went to Troas. Apparently they had some agreement to meet up in trust, but Titus wasn't there. So Paul's feeling anxious. And he's so anxious that he leaves behind all these great opportunities. He sails over the sea into Macedonia, hoping to find Titus there. And he does! And he receives the amazing news, the wonderful, encouraging, joyful news that they had listened to him. They had disciplined this man. They had humbled themselves under Paul's commands and had done what he asked. And not only that, but the discipline had brought about repentance in this man's life. And now Paul had the joyful privilege of saying to them, now what you need to do is welcome him back into fellowship in the church. So that's a happy ending to that story. So Paul's writing about his experience about his feelings to this church. This is his follow-up letter, and he's saying, this is how I felt when I sent that letter. I didn't know if you would listen to me. Oh, I was anxious. I was so anxious, I left behind these opportunities to try to find Titus. I didn't know how you were going to respond. And then in this moment of ecstasy, he just sort of like digresses. I, uh, uh, Dr. Rasmussen has been introducing some of our young people to this concept of digression. Because he digresses a lot in his classes. So my kids early on in, his, uh, in the year have, t- have told me, we learned a new concept, digression. That's sort of what Paul does here. He's like, he kind of has this, oh, this ext- ecstatic experience of relief that lifts him up over and gives him a bird's eye view of all his ministry, the joys and the pains and everything. And he gives this wonderful uh, He gives expression to it. He writes it down for us, for our benefit, because his experience and his perspective on his own sufferings and successes is something he wants us to have for ourselves, something to learn from. So God gives Paul here a kind of bird's eye view of all his labors, and he writes it down for our instruction. What can we learn from this kind of digression of Paul's, this ecstatic aside. There's some really important lessons here for us. First of all, we learn from this that whenever we open our mouths to speak about Jesus, speak up for Jesus, whenever we open our mouths to speak about Jesus, God always makes those efforts successful. That's 
That's what Paul claims. He says in verse 14, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. So despite the fact that I sometimes feel like it's not going well and I'm disturbed and I have no peace and I, I, I don't know what's going to come about, apparently God is always still leading us in triumph. That's what Paul says. And manifesting through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. So wherever we go with the gospel, we go there in triumph. It's, this, is, this is a categorical statement that Paul makes. It's not qualified or taken back by anything that follows in the text. Whenever, wherever we speak of Christ, God goes before us in triumph, is what Paul is saying. Now that's imagery that the Apostle Paul borrows from Roman military tradition. Whenever Rome won a victory, the commander and all of his armies, the victorious commander, would return home in joyful procession, received by crowds and applause, and they would come through town with all of Into, the whole army, and all of the, the spoils of war, and they would process to the temple, and they would offer sacrifices to the gods who they thought had get, granted them this victory. And the sacrifices would ascend and smoke to the heavens and be understood to be a sweet smell and aroma in the nostrils of the gods. That's the that's the image that Paul is drawing on. He's speaking to uh, Greek Greco-Romans who knew these traditions and experienced them, and they knew what he was talking. So he uses this thing that they knew to um, help them understand how God leads His faithful servants in triumph wherever they go. If you are a soldier in an army, so imagine you're a soldier in an army. Some of you are soldiers. If you're a soldier in an army to whom victory is guaranteed, that's like not a question, it's absolutely guaranteed, you know the outcome of the war before it begins, how would you fight? Would you fight like timidly, like with hesitation, with uncertainty and doubt? Or would you fight joyfully and manfully like, yes, we have the victory, that is assured to us, now let's take it for ourselves. That's how we would fight if we had confidence and the outcome. When Joshua was conquering the land of Canaan, quite often he, would, he could easily defeat God's enemies because God had caused the hearts of the enemies to melt like water before Israel. Confidence wins battles. An, in, an army that is dismayed and its heart has melted is an army that is already defeated. This is why Joshua, the commander of Israel, was repeatedly told by God um, in, in Joshua 1.9. It's an example of many times in Joshua where God says this. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's, like, that's the kind of pledge and promise we have here from the Apostle Paul. We are soldiers in Christ's army, and God would have us be confident in his power to grant us the victory. He is giving us today the same assurances that he gave to Joshua. He says, do not tremble and be dismayed, Trinity Reformed Church. Do not, be, do, not be, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I will always lead you in triumph. I will make your preaching, your witness to succeed, if only you'll be faithful to open your mouth 
and proclaim the gospel. Take the field. I've given you the victory. Why don't we want to have to take the field? (laughs) The victory is assured, and we'll talk about more about what that looks like, the realistic view of what victory consists of in God's sight. But why don't we want to have to be used of God to bring that victory into actuality, to bring it about through our mouths? Why don't we want to have to open our mouths and speak the truth of God's word to spread the knowledge of God about with our words? You know, there's an old saying that goes, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Have you heard that before? Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Well, this passage is something of a challenge to that statement. And we know that, because, that it's not simply by our example that Paul is spreading the knowledge of God, because he calls it the knowledge of God. Not the niceness of Paul, or the manners of Paul, or the godliness of Paul, but the knowledge of God. In verse 14 he says, God manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Years and years ago, almost another life, I, was, I received a fellowship to study at a top university in my field through a Christian organization to pursue a doctorate in violin here at IU. And um, after that grant period was passed, and I was done benefiting from it, they recruited me to become somebody who would review other applicants. Watch out for this, guys, if you get like a scholarship. then that <laughs> It comes with duties often. This was my duty. I had to review a whole bunch of cassette tapes of performers, because that was the area that I was knew anything about. And so I was reviewing all these people who were often real, much better than me. And I didn't have any disappointment about the fact that, you know, they're excellent. So there's a lot of early excellent musicians out there who were Christians. And, uh, what, but I was very disappointed, consistently disappointed. And I look back in my, my own application, I saw it in mine too. So I was disappointed with myself. God had given me a better understanding um, in coming here and being taught here about what's really important and how God wants to work through us with our words. But here's why I was disappointed with the applications consistently, is because nobody seemed to have faith for speaking up for God in their field. All what they wanted to do, their whole aim was to be as excellent as they possibly could at their instrument. And somehow that was going to equate to people like coming to know the Lord. And I just saw the emptiness of that. God has not ordained excellent Bach performances to save people. As lovely as they are, as enjoyable as they are, as full of God's truth as Bach and taught us are, people aren't, generally speaking, coming to know the Lord through them. And that is certainly not the primary means that God has appointed to to bring about salvation and to spread the knowledge of him in every place. He has ordained Our words about him. Our words about him. We cannot spread the gospel without words. Of course, it's important to have a life that's consistent with your message. That is really important and helpful. 
but we must bring ourselves to use words if we hope to see and share in Christ's triumph, the triumph that Paul was experiencing. Romans 10.14 says, How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Oh, but we're not all preachers, so we get off the hook. We've talked about this a lot over the last year and a half. We all share. Not all to the same degree. Not all with the same expectations or opportunities or callings. But we all share in the duty and the burden of spreading the knowledge of Christ wherever we are. Linda, in the care facility where you live, she's doing that. Each of us in our workplace, in our classrooms, in our sports teams, we share in the the duty and the privilege and the honor of being used of God to spread the knowledge of him in every place. But we often feel overwhelmed by the task. We feel ill-equipped for it. We feel like the burden of it is so huge. I've, it, this is everything God has said. And then this little, this little thing I'm encountering here, what, have, what in there do I put to use? It's all overwhelming. But if we feel the burden in every situation of communicating all the things, we will never say anything. I think Paul uses this image of an aroma, and that's a helpful image. I like to think of it this way. Each of us, to some degree, have been given like a little bottle of perfume. I know that's girly. Bear with me, men. But he's given us a bottle of, of perfume, and in there is some measure of knowledge of him. And it's a measure that grows and grows as we grow in our experience and our understanding of his word. And we can just like that around wherever we are in little ways, incidental ways. Mom goes to the grocery store with her pack of kids and somebody says the inevitable thing with the inevitable sense of judgment attached to it. Well, it looks like you got your hands full. And what does mom do? Stay silent, kind of embarrassingly smile, (laughs) and move on? Or take the opportunity to say something like, yes, children are a blessing from the Lord, and we are so undeservedly blessed by him. That's the knowledge of of Christ. What about... Maybe you're at school or at work, someplace. Somebody says, Christians are all just a bunch of hypocrites. How do you respond? Well, it's hard, isn't it? Because you know it's true. You know it's true of you. Here's an idea. Own it. Own it. Hypocrisy is a horrible sin. One, I'm guilty of myself. But you know what? I have come to know that Jesus died for hypocrites like me. And that he gives his spirit to help me grow and overcome such horrible sins in my life. Come to church with me and you'll find a group of people who are living in the same 
grace of God, as I've come to know, and are experiencing the power of God in their life to more and more put sins like that to death and to overcome them. We could do that. John, recently, I was preaching about evangelism, and he shared with me something that I was very pleased that a number of people came up and said, I want you to know that I'm doing this. God is using me in my workplace. And it's really encouraging to me. I want to pass on one of those examples to you. And I might get it somewhat wrong, but it was basically like this. John, a con- contrary against company, company policy. I hope they're not listening. <laughs> Talks about his faith with his coworkers. And sometimes they know, they, they know he's, they're on to him. They know he's a Christian, so they bring their hard questions to him. They try to stump the Christian, you know, you know with their questions, their dilemmas. And John has, this has become such a normal part of their, their relationships, and they're going back and forth. And, it's so, and John so, has found a way of, of engaging with it in good cheer. And it's so normal that this happened. So there was like, a, the store's full of customers. They're all in their different locations, seen to their customers. And um, there's this big rainstorm outside, goes on for a while, and suddenly the clouds part real quickly, and the sun shines down as beautiful. And this unbelieving coworker looks out the window and goes, Where did that come from? And John goes, You wouldn't believe it if I told you. <laughs> and if you know John, you can hear how he would say it. And the spirit in which it was said, and that woman knew what he was talking about, and she turned and smiled at him. Psst, psst. We can do this. This is our calling. We may not be the Apostle Paul, George Whitfield, but we have a calling. And we can share and spread and be a part of this, filling the world with this aroma of the knowledge of Christ, which God calls triumph. Nothing can stop the fragrance of Christ from going wherever you spread it. You spray the bottle of Scripture's wisdom, and it's now out there doing its thing, beautifying the room. And what is the thing that it's doing? Isaiah 55, 11 says, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So success, triumph is promised. It's promised in the Old Testament. Paul's just reiterating the same idea here. He always leads us in triumph whenever we speak. That leads us to the next point, which is this. We've got to learn to let God define what success or what triumph means. There's more than one effect of preaching the gospel, of speaking and witnessing to Christ. There are two responses in Scripture, two main responses to extreme ones, to the faithful preaching of the gospel. There's What must I do to be saved? There's somebody who hears it and says, yes, that's what I need. That's what I want. Help me. Tell me more. 
And there's the other response, which is away with such a one from the earth. That is, it's not appealing in the least to me, and I resent you for speaking about it to me. Those are the extreme responses that we see in Scripture. What this passage shows, it's not the only passage that shows it, but it shows it, is that God has ordained both of those responses. And he puts them here under the category of triumph. That is the authority and the power of God's word unleashed and doing its work. That's a heavy thing. It's nice to think about triumph being success, repentance, softness of heart, acceptance. What must I do to be saved? And that happens. We see it in the God's word happen. We've seen it in our own lives happen. But that is not all we see that happens. And that's not all Paul experienced in his life, as we know. He was often hated and persecuted and rejected for his message. Both of those things, though, he puts under the heading of triumph. Verse 15, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. When Paul says that God always leads us in triumph, he's not out of touch with reality. He's personally experienced both of those responses. He knows that many reject the gospel. He's known that personally. Look carefully at verses 14 and 15 again. After talking about God spreading through us the sweet aroma of Christ, so Christ is the aroma that is being spread through us in every place, in verse 15, he changes that image around, and suddenly we become the aroma of Christ to God as we speak God's words. We are an aroma. We are the sacrifice in this triumphal procession. That is, as God triumphs, we become the sacrifice, and that is our witness that is ascending to God, and God is pleased with it. And that's triumph. We are achieving what God has ordained for us to achieve, and he is receiving it as a sacrifice that is worthy of him and pleasing to him. That's the idea here. A sacrifice that is pleasing to God, that is made when we speak up for Christ and advance his cause. And God is ultimately the audience of that sacrifice of our words. But other people smell it, and they have different responses. Some of them respond in God's mercy and kindness in the same way God does. That's the smell of life and beauty and goodness. So they have God working by the power of his spirit within them, calling them to himself. And, they, and he uses your words to be the, the voice of life to them. Not everybody ha- smells the same thing, though. There's people who smell the stench of death when they hear this, and God has ordained that too. Both of those responses are triumph. That's heavy. That's heavy. Calvin says. God is glorified when the gospel brings about the ruin of the reprobate. And so, 
this must happen. And he goes on, if anything is a sweet savor to God, it ought to be to us also. That's heavy. But it should be freeing for us because it means it's not about you. (laughs) It's not about you. Success is as God deems it. And it's about him and his judgments, his choices, his work, his power. It's not on your shoulders to, to, to be successful in only one way. It's on your shoulders and my shoulders to be faithful, to proclaim the message faithfully from a heart of love. If it's not from love, it's nothing. It's of no use to us or to anybody. But if it comes from love and it comes through our lips and we speak the word of Christ and try to spread his knowledge, what God does with that is God's prerogative And we have to trust him with it. But the beautiful thing here is that we can trust that when we speak faithfully in love, God receives this as pleasing to him. And he calls it triumph. Triumph. Not only this, but it allows us to actually feel the pleasure of God upon us even when we're being spit upon and called names, we don't suddenly become impervious to disapproval and people's smearing of us or displeasure at us in our words any more than the Apostle Paul found relief from that by you know, suddenly understanding these things. We've, we carry the weight of people's opinions. If you don't do that, you're not human. It matters to many of us, and to some of us acutely, what other people think. And we don't like displeasing other people. But we can't be afraid. We can't be afraid and cower in silence because we're worried of what people will think. We have to love them, and we have to obey God. And this should help us to know that God is pleased when we... God is pleased when we have faith to speak. Speak to our children, speak to our coworkers, whoever we have opportunity to speak to. God receives it as a sacrifice that is pleasing to him. And lastly, do you see the rhetorical question that Paul asks there in verse 16? after acknowledging these things, that there's both responses and it's all triumph and it's pleasing to God, he says, and who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate for these things? Paul himself did not feel up to the task of triumph, and though you and I shouldn't expect to either. Do you feel weak in evangelism? I do. Do you? Do you look at other people who seem like they got, they're quick on their feet, good in, a, in an argument, and you, and you get discouraged about your ability to do evangelism effectively? I do. This passage shows that we've got to give up those excuses. 
Because Paul felt that way too. He looked at him, he, he had this bird's eye view, what God was doing, and he said, who is adequate for these things? God leading us in triumph, little me? Nobody's adequate for this weighty work to bring about and ordain and affect these responses. Nobody's adequate. So when Paul asks who's adequate, he's really making a statement, no one is. God is the one who works the miracle, either of acceptance through his words or of further hardening according to his purposes and will. And he will use every one of us who presents himself to be used of him in that work. This is the great commission is to go about proclaiming the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ and all the things Jesus has taught. Knowing that some will believe and some will not. Now this is not to say that we don't have responsibility to try to be more effective and to learn and to get better, to try to really persuade people. We can't just say some things, some spout some truths, you know, and feel like we did a good job and did enough. This, is there, this teaching is here to help us that whatever we got is enough at the time. But we do want to learn and grow to be more effective. God uses means. And he has taught wisdom in his word that we can, we can learn more of. And it gives us more tools to answer more questions and to... to to respond to more arguments and dilemmas and things that people bring to us. We had a, a campus evangelist visit us recently named Keith Darrell. He was a wonderful man. Really appreciated getting to know him. And he goes around portions of the year preaching on college campuses. Just open air preaching. Usually Monday through Thursday on a particular campus. And he moves on to another campus. And he's supported by a ministry called Whitfield Fellowship. So he's like got accountability and, and they oversee him in his work and his ministry. Very good man and very good at what he does. He's done it for years and he's gotten better and better at it. So it was really fun to watch and intimidating to think, I don't know that I could do that. I don't think I'd be any good at it. But well, he started somewhere too. But what he says is he's always studying and trying and reading and trying to get more and more tools answer more and more questions and grapple with more and more people effectively because he wants to be effective. But it's clear that Keith Darrell does not in the end believe it's up to Keith Darrell. He trusts in the power of the Holy Spirit to work. And that was really encouraging to me. So while he's inspired to try to become more effective as a tool for God, he trusts God to work. And he understands that some people are going to reject him. And that's okay, because he's pleasing to God. That's the, that's the idea that Paul is communicating here. And it should be very liberating for us. That God is the audience, and God is the one who's working. And he's going to perform his work through us. And if we want to be used of him, and become a sacrifice pleasing in his sight, all we have to do is have faith to open our mouths and speak to people. The question comes down to this. Are you, am I, going to let our lights shine before men? 
Or are we going to put a little basket over it and hide it so that it's not bright, not shiny, put it under a bushel? Are we going to speak in Christ in the sight of God, or are we going to remain silent? I neglected to talk about verse 17. Let me read it. Paul says, this is how we're to go about this work. We are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. We begin by speaking the word in faith and sincerity to those around us. That's as simple as it is. Each of us, according to our ability, according to our knowledge, according to our circumstances and situation. More often than we do. And God will bless it. God will bless it. How does triumph sound to you? Who likes to lose a football game or a rook tournament or, or who likes to lose anything? Nobody likes to lose anything. It's not happy. Triumph is joyful. And triumph is what by faith the Apostle Paul saw his work to be. Even though it brought about hurt, disappointment, heartache, pain, and suffering in his life and at the hands of many people. This is triumph according to God, God's view. And God's view is what matters and what's what we need. Triumph is joyful. And I think, brothers and sisters, this is a pathway to joy. In fact, both of the people that I can think of that have come up to me and given evidence in their life about speaking the word in the last couple of years have used the same word to describe it. It's thrilling. It's thrilling. It's thrilling because God's at work in it. And because we know God smiles in approval on it. And it doesn't mean we won't mess up and sin in the process of trying. But that's okay. We're under the grace of God. And we can even use that confession of sin to further the work of spreading his knowledge. So let's do Let's be about this work. Let's give ourselves to spreading abroad this knowledge of Christ in every, pray, in every place. Amen? Amen? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us, that you would cause this part of your word to encourage us and to instruct us and to free us to give ourselves to the work that you've called us and appointed uh, for us in our life. We pray, Lord, that you would be pleased and receive our attempts as a, an, a sacrifice that's pleasing in your sight, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.